Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine and sponsored by Steer. Broadcasting from the Oilfield Expert Studios. Oilfield Experts, where you get the right products right now. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. Welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. We will be joined by Melinda Yee, a Houston-based advisor partner, and Jason Spann, a Houston-based tax partner, who both work for Deloitte Consulting. But before we bring them on the show, I'd like to talk to you about our latest issue of Shell Magazine, in which it's featuring Congressman Cloud. You guys might remember him. He actually is the the congressman who won the seat from Blake Berenthal, who decided not to rerun. Um, but the interesting thing about Congressman Cloud is the fact that he actually went on Air Force One with President Trump and, his, of course, the administration and discussed the Port of Corpus Christi, and we are covering that story uh, from Congressman Cloud. It's a, it's a story you don't want to miss. So, if you want to learn more about Congressman Cloud and read his story, please make sure you go to shalemag.com. That's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com. Again, that's shalemag.com. And now it's time to bring on the editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman. David, welcome to this week's show. Hey, it's another beautiful day in Texas. Um, let's start off with um, the EIA. They made an announcement on Tuesday, which is the uh, Energy Information Administration for the Department of Energy, and they made it official that the United States has become the world's leading producer of petroleum and natural gas in 2018, meaning that production increased by 16% and natural gas rose by 12% in 2018, making the United States one of the largest petroleum and natural gas producers increase in a single country in history. Tell me your thoughts and give me a comment on, on that announcement. Well, I mean, I think we knew it was coming. We uh, They had released some estimates early in the year that they thought that had happened, and they just made it official this week, which is, you know, to me, the most amazing part of it is that about a third of all of that is coming out of the state of Texas right now. If, if Texas was a was a country, we would be, just Texas would be the third largest natural gas producer and the fourth largest producer of crude oil on the face of the earth. So it's, it's, it's mostly driven by the Permian Basin and the Eagle Ford Shale. And right. it's just uh, an amazing ongoing story here over the last decade, how all of that has developed. Well, I mean, you know, you start looking at these companies that are responsible for this. You know, uh, Rutgers recently wrote on Epic Midstream Holding and how they are bringing their uh, resources into the Gulf Coast. We hear a lot about Moda Midstream. There's also New Star Energy. I mean, there's just a lot going on. There like, is. The pipeline is bringing it, – it's, it's a really good time to be in Corpus Christi. The Port of Corpus Christi sits really well um, in, in a position to really be the benefactor, if you will, to start shipping out all these exports of uh, these big tankers that are coming in and out of the Port of Corpus Christi. But I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about, after 18 months of talking about the shortages of pipeline capacity coming out of the Permian Basin, we suddenly have a lot of activity on that front. Tell me a little bit about what's happening there. Yeah, and it, it is kind of amazing. We have been talking that, about that for more than a year now, and as all these 
uh, new pipeline projects have gotten underway and started construction. Well, within three days of one another, we had two major announcements from two big high-capacity pipeline systems. Uh, Epic Midstream Holdings uh, uh, opened their 400,000-barrel-a-day pipeline that's bringing Permian crude uh, into Ingleside to the Moto Midstream terminal that you just talked about there. And all of that's right. going to be exported, so that's getting added to U.S. crude export volumes. And then um, Plains All-American, uh, their Cactus Two system, which is even bigger, 670,000 barrels per day capacity, bringing crude from both uh, the Eagle Ford and the Permian Basin, again, to the Port of Corpus Christi, uh, directly to the Port of Corpus Christi. And, uh, you know, uh, that, that went into operation this past week, and uh, it will be fully subscribed uh, in September, pumping at full volume. So uh, all of a sudden now we have over a million barrels per day additional pipeline capacity coming out of the Permian Basin with three or four uh, additional pipelines, new new lines and expanded lines uh, scheduled to be completed over the next nine to 12 months. So it's, it's uh, that bottleneck that has existed for the past year is, is largely going away all of a sudden. So it's really good news for the producers out there. Right, which you had called that. You said when they come online, we're going to start seeing this stuff re-up. Also, uh, in the industry, we had some good news on the LNG exports where they're concerned. We didn't have one, but two facilities coming online within days of one another. So yeah. <laughs> do you think, though, that this is going to raise natural gas prices a little bit? I mean, they, they could do some, some propping up in that area. Hopefully so. I mean, you know, anything that uh, results in the opening up of additional markets for the product, that, you know, the problem natural gas has in the United States is that we just have this massive oversupply of the product and uh, not, not a enough demand for it to, to use it all up. And so, yeah, anything that, that increases export volumes, and we've had uh, uh, the Semper Energy uh, facility at Cameron LNG in Hackberry, Louisiana, open this week, and uh, Freeport LNG, uh, you know, uh, commenced their liquefaction operations last week So uh, here in Texas. So, you know, now we've gone from zero LNG export facilities as recently as uh 2015. Now we have six big ones uh, up and running and several more on the books. And so, you know, United States natural gas, this LNG is going to dominate the market here uh, in the future. And uh, it's just uh, another way uh, all this uh, amazing abundance helps our uh, economy here in the U.S., our national security and, you know, trade deficit and all that. And so it's, uh, you know, it's really good news for everybody. And it's one of those resources, fuel resources, that is a really good thing for the environment, too, and we, that never really gets discussed, how it's a really not clean-burning fuel. I mean, that's another thing that we saw just late this week was the announcement that coal plants in Texas only generated 21% of our electricity in 2018. That's down from almost 50% a decade ago. Well... You know, and that's all thanks to, to the growing uh, natural gas uh, electricity generation in Texas, and that's that is cleaning the air, you know, every day. So it's yeah, it's all good news for everybody. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about a pretty important announcement of an oil and gas related company we traditionally know very well, Drilling Info, had a big change this week. They have a new name. 
And yeah. I guess I want to know, why did they change the name, and why did they make that decision? I looked it up. I kind of heard what Alan Gilmer has said, and I'm like, let me get your opinion, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I first met Alan uh, 19 years ago, about six months after they had started that business. He was uh, making a, a, a presentation on it at uh, the TIPRO conference that year in 2000 and uh you know it started out as if they digitized all the 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 acreage and ownership and uh uh existing well data kept by the railroad commission and so the name drilling info made a lot of sense because it was just information digitizing all this paper records and and microfilm records suddenly now you had it available on your computer so the, the name drilling info was totally appropriate but you know in the last 20 years that company has mushrooms right. with this vast array of new technologies and services. And so, you know, I think Alan just felt like drilling info didn't really encompass what the company is all about. And, uh, so they, they changed the name to Embarrass, and, um, you know, that's what we're going to have to try to remember going forward. What I read was that he was never really committed to that name. And then as I look at the diversity within the company, it does make sense that they're, they're looking at other areas even outside of oil and gas as well. Yeah. So to help yeah. other areas. So it probably does make sense. However, I did read that the report said that drilling info will remain the same in the area of oil and gas. Yeah. But just to kind of right. expand their Right, but it's this big global su- service company now that uh, it's just a, a huge data operation that uh, is, is so much more diverse now than it used to be. It, you know, name change totally makes sense. I think that's the name of the game these days is diversify, diversify, diversify (laughs) the revenue streams for sure. Well, David, that is all the time we have. And I'm sure we're going to catch up on more things that are changing in this ever-changing industry. Talk to you next week. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil and Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. Again, that's info at shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G, dot com. Or you can call us. 210-240-7188. Again, that's 210-240-7188. Plan your next meeting or event at Victoria College's Emerging Technology Complex, home to the state-of-the-art conference and education center, conveniently located between Houston and Corpus Christi. The center hosts meetings, educational workshops, and banquets for up to 300 people with the latest in technology amenities and ample parking. Let their professional meeting planners make your next event a success. For more information, go to conferenceinvictoria.com. Once again, that's conferenceinvictoria.com. The vision of the Women's Energy Network is to be the premier organization that educates, attracts, retains, and develops professional women working across the value chain. Also known as WEN, our mission is to develop programs that provide networking opportunities and foster career and leadership development of women who work in the energy industry. Thousands of women are breaking ground in energy industry careers every year, and 4,000 of them are already members of the Women's Energy Network across our 14 chapters. Members receive exclusive access to mentoring, job boards, group discussions, member-only networking events, expert speaking engagements, and more. 
Join today by visiting womensenergynetwork.org slash Houston or call 1-855-390-0650. The Women's Energy Network, empowering women in energy. The Texas Alliance of Energy Producers has a rich and commanding history of fighting for the independent oil and gas industry. The Texas Alliance became a statewide organization in 2000 with the merger of two of the oldest oil and gas associations in the nation, the North Texas Oil and Gas Association and the West Central Texas Oil and Gas Association. Today, with more than 2,600 members, the Texas Alliance is the largest statewide association in the country serving independent energy producers and associated industries. Through our efforts in Washington, D.C., and Austin, the Texas Alliance is focused on a better business climate for you. The Texas Alliance has a staff consisting of highly experienced senior staff and supporting consultants serving our membership. Offices are located in Austin and Wichita Falls. Become a member today by visiting texasalliance.org or email us texasalliance at texasalliance.org. And welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bilotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. We're going to be joined in studio by Melinda Yee, who is a partner with Deloitte & Touche LLP. A, she's a leader in Deloitte's oil and gas merger and acquisition transaction services. And also Jason Spann, who's a partner with Deloitte Tax LLP, who is part of the Texas Marketplace Leader of M&A Transaction Services. So yes, folks, today we are going to talk about mergers and acquisitions. It seems pretty timely when you think about there's a lot going on in oil and gas right now in the market sector. We've seen some fluctuation with oil prices. And so uh, before we get started, though, Melinda, tell me a little bit about your history with a Deloitte as well as a little bit about, you know, yourself. So I focus on the accounting side of the due diligence aspects of uh, transactions. And I've been focused on the energy sector for the past 20 years, have experience across the energy spectrum. So upstream, downstream, midstream, uh, renewable energy, as well as power and utilities. Here in Houston, I also serve as the Houston advisory leader for our for our practice. Excellent. Now you have 20 years with Deloitte as well. That's huge. And it must be, it's a great company to work for. That's right. I started right out of school and uh, really enjoy the culture. Um, moved around a bit. This is now, Houston's now my fourth office, um, but it's the people that have always kept me here. Jason, you specifically are in the Texas marketplace as a leader for M&A? Well, yeah, that's right. Uh, so I am I come from the tax side of our firm, but been part of M&A transaction services uh, most of my career, probably for at least the last 20 years or so. Been in public accounting for a little over 24 years now. Been with Deloitte the majority of that. Started my career with another firm here in Houston that uh, many people would recognize, but is no longer here. Uh, but made the transition. We <laughs> yeah, we know which one you're talking about. Right. Uh, made the Great transition time. in um, in 2002 and and been doing uh, energy M and A uh, work. You know, for the vast majority of my career. Well, th- they do need each other, right? Mergers, acquisitions need specifically tax um, experts as well as, you know, how do you finally get them to where they need to be, whether it's a merger or an acquisition. I want to begin, uh, tell me a little bit about Deloitte's section in the oil and gas M&A section. It's it's kind of a holistic approach, if you will, to uh, transactions and consulting services. So tell me about this approach that Deloitte has. Well, Kim, maybe just to start, start you know, I'll put the perspective on uh, our firm as a whole, right? We are 
a firm that has uh, not only the financial accounting, audit, tax, advisory. We also have consult a large consulting practice, which does allow us to bring a, a wide variety of, of perspectives and services to our clients. So that sort of the, the broad, holistic approach, as you, as you referred to it, um, we have those capabilities within the firm. Um, and there's a number of you know different ways we can bring that. I don't know, Melinda, you want to talk about some of the things we, we might typically do in that uh, scenario, in these types of scenarios? So we talk about how we can serve clients across the M&A life cycle, starting from initial strategy identification and potentially identifying some targets, even even helping with um, the, the acquisition process through uh, uh, our investment banking practice and representation that we can offer there. Um, Jason and I are both involved in more of the transaction execution once the letter of intent has already been signed and a deal has been identified and the diligence process truly uh, gets started both on the accounting as well as the tax side. But we also offer within Deloitte um, operational due diligence as well as valuation assistance and um, integration. So once the deal is signed and you start to look at how you might want to integrate this company into your current operations, um, we can help on a functional basis and we have very deep functional expertise as well as some of the accounting in terms of setting up things like uh, the GL and transition and considering uh, change management opportunities, uh, p- potentially some transformational opportunities as well, perhaps a new ERP system, for instance. So it's kind of turnkey from the start all the way through it. You guys can walk a company everything that they possibly need and consult them mm-hmm. along the way. Yeah, for, where they want to end up. Uh, one of the things you'll see in a, in, a, in a big merger, particularly to you know big companies, not really an asset deal, is the the integration and the issues that come with just even uh, human capital, the people management of how do you combine two companies, and we have people that help with that as well. So there's a lot of complex areas when you're trying to combine these companies, and we have you know services that that uh, and experts in all these areas that can can help lean in on those types of situations and help advise and guide clients around those all sorts of areas. At the same time, our approach though is we want to tailor what you need as a as a potential client or a, in a potential transaction. Not everybody needs all things. So obviously, we try to customize and tailor our approach based on on a given transaction or a given client. I would imagine that if a company is is looking at some of these options, merger, acquisition, it might be once, twice in a lifetime. Usually, uh, companies and individuals that work for these companies aren't going through this all the time, like you change jobs. So I would imagine with Deloitte having so much experience of doing this a lot and all the time, there's got to be some reassurance. Uh, I couldn't imagine going through it a couple of times, how, how difficult it must be. It's so, like you said, complex and making sure that you know what's coming before it comes and you have a good understanding of what's going to happen is probably important. Deloitte, you guys do buying, selling, partnering. Um, so you guys do a broad resources and multiple disciplinary and integrated approach. So that being said, it's kind of everything. And, and I know we talked about it, but can we Take one step back and break that down of what does that life cycle look like? Just an oversight, because most of us have never been through a merger or an acquisition to quite understand how detailed it is. So just addressing how long does it take, it really does vary depending upon the transaction and, and, and the negotiations between the two parties, what they can agree upon. And uh, and whether there even is another party yet, right? Sometimes it's the life cycle begins before there's even maybe a deal on the table. It's the strategy. What you know? How do we identify what's the right strategy? Where do we want to potentially make an acquisition? And what does that look like? That's right. That whole identification. How do you want to fill in? Do you need to expand geographies? Are you looking to expand products? 
we can help with developing that strategy, what makes sense for a company, uh, but also target identification in terms of areas where uh, once you've developed what that strategy is, what companies might actually meet the criteria. Do you think that um, the, the life cycle, is this a window of maybe um, 90 days for a company that's kind of decided what they want to do? Or is this a year-long process? Is this a two-year-long process? I mean, yeah. I know that some won't have buyers, some won't have uh, the ability to... So Deloitte will do some research on that and, and try to bring them to the table. Let's say there is a transaction identified, a target identified. Uh, the timelines, again, you'll hear this a lot, but it can vary. But I would say on a typical deal that we might see, there is the target identification, hey, we want this is the company we want to do a transaction with, or we want to buy. There's a due diligence period, there's negotiations of a purchase and sale agreement, legal documents, all those things that happen. And that can typically, I would say, take, you know, 60, 90 days, something like that. To the larger corporate public deals can be, you know, months, if not more than a year in some cases. Well, I'm glad you, you pointed that out, because thinking about it, it probably is, okay, you've completed the transaction, but now what? And, and how do we integrate this, these companies together? When we return from break, I want to get on the type of companies that Deloitte usually helps. Um, are these Fortune 500 companies? Are these uh, smaller companies? So when we return from break, we'll get on that. We do have to take a quick break. You are listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. We're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Melinda Yee and Jason Spann with Deloitte. Before the break, we had a lot of discussion on what is merger acquisition, what type of uh, companies, um, how long is the span of an M&A. But I want to focus on the Fortune 500 companies versus smaller companies. Where does Deloitte focus on as far as businesses? Is it just five Fortune 500 companies? What is the ideal company for Deloitte to kind of assist and help? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, you know, being a big four firm, I think people make the assumption, you know, Fortune 500 is great. We love big uh, strategic clients like that. But in reality, I think as much activity we see from an M&A space, and a lot of our market really comes from what I would call more the uh, mid-sized companies, uh, as well as some private companies. Uh, and a significant amount of our practice comes from financial investors, private equity, uh, infrastructure funds, other sorts of uh, financial buyers that play in that market are a big part of our client base as well. So all sizes, um, Melinda, come into Deloitte looking for assistance. And I'm curious to understand, is it a, a mid-sized company? Are we talking about a certain billing amount? I mean, how do you all classify a mid-size? Is it a non-publicly traded company with a billing of maybe $50 million a year? Or is it something smaller than that? Um, what's the ideal that you guys do the most business transactions? So I would say from a transaction perspective where we tend to get more involved is things that are over are probably 40 million and above. But it really does depend upon um, the, the clients and what they're looking for, the complexity of the transaction and our relationship with the client as well. So we have some uh, longstanding private equity relationships that Jason mentioned where um, we're doing uh, most of their work, and they're looking at transactions of varying sizes, um, from those very small deals that are, you know, under fifty million to the things that are in the billion dollar range. Now I want to move into the market because we have some really interesting things happening. Uh, a lot of uh, oil and gas activity. 
Basically, back in 2018, we saw an extreme volatility in the commodity market, right? And how is the market doing now, especially in the U.S. exploration and production EMP sector, where evaluations look attractive for buyers in a more mature shell business? So in the upstream sector in 2019, you see a continued trend in um, decreased activity. In fact, I think uh, through... Uh, May of this year, transaction activity is uh, the lowest in a decade in term in the upstream sector, especially. And there's a couple things driving that. It's the private, it's the uh, access to capital, both through um, the equity markets as well as the debt markets, and uh, Wall Street really not valuing the bull play type transactions. Yeah, and so I mean, one of the things I would add to that, and what I've hear hear from some of my clients when we we look at uh, what's happened in 2019 in the upstream space, is uh, there's still been a tremendous amount of price volatility in the oil markets. Right, we started the end of last year, I'll say the last quarter of 18, with a, a fairly rapid drop in oil prices going into year end. You know, looks like you know we hit bottom close to year end in December. You know, we've started the year with sort of things moving back up through uh, you know late April. And then we've seen some volatility back down. So what I hear from our clients is this continued volatility in the, in the prices has made it very difficult to really have comfort in valuation and wh- where it's at. Uh, and I think that's prevented some participants from aggressively pursuing the market for deals. The other thing that, that comes to play is the type of deals that are out there. I think you you make you made mention of mature plays. I think those are clearly more in favor. So cash flowing, cash producing properties and and and, and plays make a whole lot more sense for the market right now. But again, I think getting agreement on price, given some of the volatility and uncertainty where prices are going to go in the in the near term, has just been challenging for the market on kind of really setting uh, valuations. Well, let's drill down just a little bit because the price of global benchmark Brent oil plunged from $85 a barrel in October to well below 50 in late December of 2018. The volatility looked like it spooked some of the investors Investors and made it impossible for buyers and sellers to agree on maybe what was considered to be a fair value for assets in like oil fills and, and drilling rigs. So help me understand what happened to the M&A markets and more importantly, has things changed from 2018 and all of the stuff that we saw from 2018 and some 17 to now? Or is it just a continuation of 2018 with 2019? It's caused them to be more cautious. Um, and again, my sense is buyers are, are you know pricing things at a lower price point in terms of oil prices assumptions than than sellers uh, are want you know trying to get given some of the recent highs. I think causing fewer fewer transactions to happen. And I would also add that buyers are being more cautious in terms of how they're approaching transactions, and the public companies are rewarded for staying within their cash flows, and so uh, they're looking to make accretive transactions and not necessarily uh, just purchase acreage to to drill and hold. When we return from break, I want to get back on the topic of what is the fertile environment for to see M&A transactions occurring, or is there a, a better environment than not? But we do have to take a quick break. You are listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. 
Agreco has been powering the Permian Basin for over 10 years, supporting Permian producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. Agreco supports power systems as small as a single 200 kilowatt to as large as a 50 megawatt power plant. So when your utility power is delayed, call on Agreco to engineer a diesel, natural gas, or battery solution to fit your needs. We have immediate availability right here in the Permian Basin. Call 1-800-AGRECO or online agreco.com. We're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Melinda and Jason from Deloitte. Uh, before the break, we were discussing um, past 2018 versus where we are today. We still have a lot of volatility going on in the market, which is, you know, been, it seems like it's been quite constant for the last two to three years, a lot of instability. Do you guys find that there's more fertile environments for making deals like? in the past, 2017, 2018, or do you feel 2019 will be a strong year as well? I believe the numbers have been down to some degree, but uh, maybe they'll catch up. We still have another six months to go in the year. Yeah, so I think 2019 has certainly start, started off slow uh, from an activity perspective, and you know, there's a lot of factors that seem to indicate that that will continue to be the case. You know, we've, we've talked about capital discipline and living within cash flows and uh, the equity markets and debt markets um, being difficult to access by this industry, which I think are all factors in terms of that activity that will occur for the remainder of 2019. Uh, but there are sectors that may have some opportunities, and I think midstream is one of them. Midstream is a sector where you've seen more activity uh compared to, to prior year. Downstream is also a sector where you've also had some, some large denounced transactions as well. And with uh, you know potential exports, it, it, it seems that it's going to be a sector of continued activity, as well as I'd say adjacent sectors like chemicals and petrochemicals that go along with that downstream activity. So Jason, we're, we've seen that the upstream deal value has been declining here in the United States. Do you believe, or Melinda, that there'll be more of this activity going on in the upstream? Because I do want to also try to get into mid and downstream here and just break, you know, drill down into these different areas. Sure. We've talked a lot about upstream back and price volatility and stuff, but do you think that going into 2019, the ending of it, we're going to see the same the same thing happening with upstream specifically declining if i knew for sure um i probably would be doing something else for a living <laughs> but um no look it, it, it it's hard to predict the the biggest factor seems to be you know the, the price environment and the uncertainty or uncertainty of of where where the markets are headed with price so as we have this volatility and and i think continued uncertainty coming from all sorts of areas uh there's geopolitical things going on as well as just the economics of, of drilling oil and gas wells, that uncertainty is going to continue to be the challenge, I think, to uh, a large volume of, of deal activity as, as things settle in. And if there is a bit more predictability or at least consensus, maybe I'll even say that, maybe people were going to be wrong. But when, when at least there begins to be more consensus about where the markets are going in price, that allows buyers and sellers to, to transact um, using you know similar valuation uh, 
inputs. But until uh, we get to get away from some of the volatility, I think it's going to, in the near term, it's going to be a challenging market. Very interesting. Melinda, you had mentioned earlier, we've seen a lot of activity in midstream. Let's break that down. What is occurring in midstream? There's obviously a lot of activity. What do you think the trends that are happening now in midstream are? So there's always been a need for that infrastructure, the takeaway capacity from some of these major basins. And you've had some bottlenecks that have been occurring because that takeaway capacity uh, was not in place. And so you're seeing more of that being built out. And you're going to see some of that come online later this year. Um, So that should help from a a market perspective in, in getting product uh, from from basins to to the refining regions, continues to be interest in that sector by infrastructure as well as private equity funds. Those infrastructure funds really like that consistent um, sort of cash flow stream that goes along with that. Um, but you're also seeing some partnering of um, some upstream players with uh, the producers with some financial players as well to help develop that midstream infrastructure. And I, yeah, I would agree. So one of the things that's going on, and Melinda alluded to, you know, we see this in the Permian a lot. It happens in some of the other basins, but Permian is the the really active place these days. Uh, is there so much new production coming online? They don't have uh, in all the right places the right capacity of pipe to get it out, get it to market, get it processed, and so that creates uh, an opportunity. The differentials between WTI Midland versus Cushing is is creates an opportunity, I think, for midstream players and investors to continue to build out and support this production growth that's going on in, in the Permian. And it's not only just, you know, the offtake and getting oil and gas out. It's it's also, in some cases, getting, you know, water in and water out because, uh, obviously, the, the fracking technologies we have require quite a bit of water and other infrastructure just to support. So there's a lot of activity and space around that, particularly in the Permian, that we've, we've seen both corporates as Melinda mentioned, private equity and infrastructure funds, there's a number of players in that market. There's also some interesting activity with some of the major upstream type companies getting in and jumping in and focusing more on midstream as well to be more integrated with up and midstream as well. What about how much activity are you guys seeing in downstream as well? Are there trends there? I mean, I know we've seen an uptick on downstream. So I would imagine that historically these levels have been high. Is there still a lot of activity in this sector as well for maybe mergers, acquisitions, and other activity? So the downstream sector requires a lot of capital or to go and build one requires a lot of capital. But refining margins are really good right now. And there's, you know, low cost feedstock here in the U.S. coming out of the shale regions and the major shell basins. And so you're seeing a lot of interest, seeing some new crackers being put in place. And as a result, you know, you, you are seeing an interest in that sector, both from, uh, I would say, refining, but also adjacent uh, areas such as petrochem and storage um, and some of those those pipelines that might be feeding, um, or excuse me, some of the, the storage that might be feeding um, the export activity as well. And in the downstream area, there seems to be, you know, as you had said, there's a lot of activity in the petrochemical. Here in Houston alone, it seems like it's always been here. It just seems like it's at such a higher volume now with activity. So I guess I'm wondering if, uh, is it access to capital that you guys are seeing a lot of that they that is the need, or is it that companies are, are uh, doing mergers and and trying to figure out like where is where do you feel the need has been for 
the downstream part since it's been growing in, in multiple areas. I think there's just a lot of uh, investors seeing an opportunity for for um, uh, larger returns on their investment in that sector um, than they're seeing maybe you're getting opportunities for in the upstream space today. But so it, it, it again, all this uh, production that we we've been generating out of out of uh, the shell plays, it's got to go somewhere. It's got to be processed, refined somewhere. Uh, people are not generally building uh, new refineries. That uh, environmentally and cost wise is a expensive proposition. So I think those existing refining assets out there have just become more valuable um, in the context of increasing volumes and production. Interesting. There's also a need to create some economies of scale within the refining uh, sector as well. And so um, and that's that's also, as you think about some of the global companies and their announced strategy, uh, global oil and companies not necessarily based headquartered here in the U.S. that have announced um, you know, looking at uh, getting into chemicals as well. And so um, they're, they're looking at what's adjacent to some of their refineries and, and how can they create some synergies from that, from that process. Interesting. We do have to take a quick break. When we return, I want to get on the topic of oilfield services as well and start talking about the activity that's going on in there. We do have to take a quick break. You're listening to and the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. Again, that's info at shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G, dot com. Or you can call us. 210-240-7188. 210-240-7188. Again, that's 210-240-7188. Plan your next meeting or event at Victoria College's Emerging Technology Complex, home to the state-of-the-art conference and education center, conveniently located between Houston and Corpus Christi. The center hosts meetings, educational workshops, and banquets for up to 300 people with the latest in technology amenities and ample parking. Let their professional meeting planners make your next event a success. For more information, go to conferenceinvictoria.com. Once again, that's conferenceinvictoria.com. The Texas Alliance of Energy Producers has a rich and commanding history of fighting for the independent oil and gas industry. The Texas Alliance became a statewide organization in 2000 with the merger of two of the oldest oil and gas associations in the nation, the North Texas Oil and Gas Association and the West Central Texas Oil and Gas Association. Today, with more than 2,600 members, the Texas Alliance is the largest statewide association in the country serving independent energy producers and associated industries. Through our efforts in Washington, D.C., and Austin, the Texas Alliance is focused on a better business climate for you. The Texas Alliance has a staff consisting of highly experienced senior staff and supporting consultants serving our membership. Offices are located in Austin and Wichita Falls. Become a member today by visiting texasalliance.org or email us texasalliance at texasalliance.org. We're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Melinda Yee, as well as Jason Spann, and you guys are with Deloitte. Thank you guys for coming in today and talking to us about 
mergers and acquisition and all the things that Deloitte really are, are experts at. But uh, I want to get back on the topic. We've talked about upstream, we've talked about midstream and the activity and uh, what can we expect, trends. But there's also some uh, oil field services that as of lately have made some announcements of some mergers and acquisitions. And I want your input on what do you think we'll see with oil field services specifically going into 2019 and 20? Is there some trends that you guys can, can share with us, if you will? Melinda, go ahead. So I'd say the oil field services sector has really been hard hit because if you think about the cost takeout that has occurred, the oil field services in cost per well and whatnot, um, a lot of that is is coming from renegotiating contracts with oil field services providers and really kind of um, looking at the prices that are being offered in that sector. Oil field services companies, as a result, are really looking at their portfolio of offerings and considering you know what is going to be key and strategic for them. And I think they're going to look at opportunistic opportunities, but they are going to be very disciplined in in how they approach that um, and not go beyond their means. Uh, they're going to look for things that maybe fit a geographic need for them or potentially a service need from an offering perspective that they don't currently have. It could be an opportunity to acquire a customer relationship that may not be in place, especially among um, some of the specialty um, providers in particular basins where they might be looking to to grow from a scale perspective. Um, it's been a tough sector from an acquisition and activity perspective, and it's hard to see that uh, changing, but there are uh, several smaller companies out there that, you know, potentially, and there might be an opportunity for them to do something. Yeah, I, w- I would say uh, sort of the, the, the way things happen in the oil field service sector is when things go down with the producers, the oil field service sector, those service providers are typically the first to get squeezed on prices and margin. And as things recover, they seem to be the last to kind of get to come back to the party and, and, and get some of their uh, margins back. So uh, it, it seems to be that's kind of what's happening here. And it's been a challenge. I think, as Melinda you know, noted, there, there probably there are still out there some niche service providers, some niche players um, that that are doing well and, and maybe opportunities for either targets or, or to, to expand. But as a whole, the industry's challenge, I think what I see more of than anything these days um, is some of the larger service companies divesting of non-core pieces of their business. Um, so we do see some of that activity uh, where you know businesses or business units are getting uh, you know carved out and sold off either some cases to potentially other strategics in some cases uh, we see you know sort of private equity and financial buyers coming in to stand up uh, you know as a standalone new company taking these divisions out so there is activity there it seems to be a bit opportunistic and it's it's a little bit hard to see you know uh, any consistent or expecting any sort of consistent uptick in the space overall it's been a challenging space for a while when crude prices and, and the operators are, are trying to figure out what to do and they of course start squeezing the service company, and, and we're talking about maybe like a Halliburton or a Schlumberger, the big ones that we're all very familiar with, do they have the capacity of passing on that loss to the consumer? And I would think that they, they don't, that they kind of just have to bear those uh, reducing margins of, of profit, and, and they're just having to endure that, and it's probably 
why we might see more maybe mergers and acquisitions amongst the service companies themselves doing these things? You, you might. I mean, I think there's potential, right? And some, it's going to be very, I think, specific to their fact pattern. But you might see some of that where creating more scale allows them to squeeze out some 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 costs from the system. So some of the synergies from you know not duplicating some of the same uh, infrastructure takes to run these businesses or complementary. Uh, service offerings where maybe as as together there's there's more strength and, and value in the combined services of the two companies together than separate. But I think those are going to be very uh, those uh, one off and, and 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 maybe very specific opportunistic situations. That's at least in my opinion. I would agree. I mean, it, it is about economies of scale and taking out some of that back office costs. Um, I think there will be some situations potentially offshore service providers that might actually look at forming um, some JVs and putting together some complementary services that um, they may not offer uh, individually, but together could could form something that um, would be welcomed by the market. Um, But we'll see as to what that activity ends up being. Well, one thing is for sure that oil and gas definitely uh, is consistently always changing. And as we see these changes occurring, uh, it's interesting to see how companies respond and I, you know, I want to say thank you for both of y'all coming into studio and talking to us because you guys do this every day, and, and that's awesome. Helping these customers either come together or finding capital that's necessary, and you guys are real experts in this area. But to the average person, it's a really hard uh, concept, and there's a lot of complicated things that are involved in this. And it's really hard to get really good, valid information out there. I mean, you can do a lot of Google searches. Trust me, when I was trying to prepare for the show, it's a it's a difficult thing. There's a lot of information out there. And just trying to wrap your head around how these companies maneuver these huge, you know, mergers or acquisitions is, 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 is impressive when you think about it. And, and then, of course, how when they do merge, um, how they're able to take care of all of the staff, employees, and merge everybody together and, and create another good company out of having two companies come together. But I do want to thank you guys for coming in and helping us understand mergers and acquisitions and your areas of expertise. So yep. thank you, Melinda and Jason, for joining us today. Absolutely. No problem, Kim. Thanks. Thank Thanks for having us. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bilotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.